1: Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin.
0: Hello, America. I'm Mark Levin. Our number, temporary number, 866-505-4626. 505 4626 We're in our third studio... I remain in the bunker. Our CBS studio, The Virus. Our WABC studio, The Virus. Now Westwood One slash WMEL. Hang in there, fellas. I think they'll be just fine. But we're lucky to be on the air today, and I want to thank our folks, Jonas. Uh, who's the other fellow? And Adrian, I want to thank my man, Rich, behind the scenes. But ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you. I want to continue where I started last week because it's starting to pick up steam. You know, when the Democrats, Sanders called himself a democratic socialist, they're not democratic socialists. What we're learning now is they're fascistic socialists. They're iron fisted Venezuelan socialists. They want to tank this economy if they don't get their way. Tank this economy. You know what they want? Same day voter registration. Because they're corrupt, and there's no way to vet people when they're registering the same day. They want to eliminate the entire post office debt, tens of billions of dollars in this bill. Solar and wind energy subsidies. Then they go on. we got to make sure the money goes to the people, not to the corporations. Ladies and gentlemen, the vast majority of us work for a corporation or a small business. Why do they keep trashing American business? It's American corporations that are coming up with therapies for this virus. It's American corporations that are going to come up with a vaccine. It's American corporations that are running the assembly lines and changing them to make ventilators rather than automobiles, to make masks and gowns rather than 3M tape. It's the private sector that is in the heart and soul of this country. Not politicians and not bureaucrats. Not fascistic socialism. Not redistribution of wealth. Our representatives are not supposed to go to Congress representing this group or that group. They're supposed to be Americans. This class warfare BS is going to destroy the middle class. It's going to destroy blue-collar workers you got clowns like Andrew Cuomo, who's never run a 7-Eleven, talking about nationalizing industries and directing them when to produce. When it was, in fact, state governments that didn't provide enough beds. State governments that didn't have enough masks and enough gowns and enough ventilators and respirators. Now running to the federal government, begging that they produce them. And it was the federal government under Barack Milhouse Benito Obama that used all the masks in reserve during the Ebola situation and never replaced them, never replaced them. If we have a shortage of doctors, in part, you can blame Congress. That tied residency numbers to Medicare funding and limited the number of residents, just like the states, 36 of them, including New York, including California. Illinois, Michigan, that limited the number of beds. I don't understand this. According to the CDC numbers right now, slightly over 41,000 people have this virus. I'll bet there's a million. But according to their statistics, and 499 people have died. And we're out of everything. How are we out of everything? 41,000 people? you spread that over 10 state, 50 states, I know it doesn't work that way, but I'm giving you an example. That's less than 10,000 a state. We don't have enough beds? What happens if we're attacked? What happens if there's a nuclear attack? What happens if there's a, uh, an attack on our electronic grid? What are these states and hospitals and suppliers going to do? Unbelievable. So the Democrats know this will come to an end. And they don't give a damn if the economy sinks. You want to know why? Think about it. Because they consider themselves winning no matter what. Trump will be defeated in their minds. They'll be able to nationalize industries. They'll be able to take over corporate boardrooms. They'll be able to run the unions. They'll be able to do everything. When this country's in trouble, the Democrats believe there's opportunity. This Democrat party is a diabolical, evil party. With some exceptions, but mostly not. This is the party that brought us a civil war in defense of slavery. This is the party that promoted segregation for over a hundred years. This is the party that the Klan that Klan represented, all the way up into the 1920s and early 1930s. This is the party whose governor stood in the schoolhouse doors. This is the party that sought a coup against a sitting president of the United States and wanted to continue the impeachment trial despite the fact that this Wuhan China coronavirus virus was already... Spreading. And now what do they want to do? They want to destroy our governmental system and our economic system. They see an opportunity. Pelosi and the Democrats, the clown governor of New York. Oh, he's so wonderful. He's a clown. Barely literate. Like his dumb brother. They keep pushing this Defense Production Act. The president always already triggered it, but the president has been prudential, he's been careful in the exercise of his power. Unlike some of these blue state governments, they can't wait to shut down their states. This act, I said to you before, is divided into three main sections. Priorities and allocations, which allows the president to require corporations to accept and prioritize contracts for services and materials deemed necessary to aid U.S. national defense. So they want to push the outer bounds of this law. Expansion of productive capacity and supply, which gives the president the authority to create incentives for industry to produce critical materials. General provisions, which broadly establishes government authority to strike agreements with private industry, to halt foreign corporate mergers that threaten national security, to create a volunteer block of industry, on and on and on, enormous power. The president can take over assembly lines. He can decide what is or is not produced. The government, the federal government, is not competent to do this. It is incompetent. Look at these members of Congress for the most part. They are boobs. And with all respect to NIH and HHS and CDC and all the rest of them, they're not perfect. They know nothing about the economy. Not a damn thing about the economy. They're the ones that didn't have enough masks ready, enough ventilators ready, enough on and on and on. I'm not attacking them. I'm just making a point. Donald Trump shows up a little over three years into office, and he's having to deal with all this, all these gaps, all these failures, all whatever you want to call them. Nancy Pelosi's been around forever. That's part of the problem. She's old, she's dumb, and she's vicious, much like Schumer, much like Biden. Old, dumb, and vicious. So massive shortages we have, right? Over 40,000 people have the virus, and less than 500 have died. Well, why do we have massive shortages? Now we've got testing. Who came up with these tests? The government? No, the private sector. Now we have therapies that might be working out there. They're testing them all. Where'd those come from? Private sector. Now there's a vaccine they're working on. Where did it come up? Private-public partnership, meaning mostly the private sector. Now I want to ask you folks something. Democrat, Republican, no party. Blue collar, white collar, union, non-union. Do you work for a company, most of you? Small or large? The answer is yes. The Democrat Party is trashing these companies, trashing them, trashing them, small, medium, and large. And notice who's not, who's not taking a hit. Have you noticed this, Mr. Producer? Members of Congress, their salaries aren't being cut. Members of Congress aren't giving up their pensions. Members of Congress never give up anything. They're very desirous of being in the boardroom and telling these executives what they should earn and what they shouldn't earn. But when it comes to them, they're very protective. They don't live under Obamacare. These guys retire, they're multimillionaires. Multimillionaires. So they think and pretend they're for the little guy. Well, I want to ask all you little guys out there what is same day voting? same-day voting uh, uh, registration have to do with you and your job? What does eliminating the post office debt have to do with you and your job? What does subsidies for solar and wind industries have to do with your job? What does government paid for abortion, which is Pelosi's first move, and fully funding Planned Parenthood have to do with your job? This is a disgrace. Now, there's two things going on here. The Democrats, in one word, are trying to sabotage the president and the economy by pretending otherwise. Sabotage. But there's another course here, too. The Republicans. The Republicans are running scared. And rather than embracing tried and true economic policies, tried and true economic policies, they're embracing big government socialism. And it won't work. If we come out of this, it'll be in spite of these policies. They won't work. We know they won't work. They've been tried before. Excellent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by Arthur Laffer and Stephen Moore which I hope to get to later. The Republicans have proposed a $1.8 trillion bill. The federal budget last year was about $4.5.46 trillion total. So that means the federal government would spend over $6 trillion in one year. The entire economy in a good year, it's about $17.5 trillion. This would add a massive amount of debt to your children and my children. And you might say, we need it, Mark. We need what? Do you even know what's in it? Then I hear clowns on TV and radio talking about shut down the government for two, excuse me, shut down the economy for two weeks. Shut Down the economy? I went into a little store today. My wife's going to be furious. It's called Dunkin' Donuts. It's a franchise. Believe it or not, I wanted a cup of coffee. Two guys, they're Indian immigrants. Biden and his joke. But two guys, Indian immigrants. I've been friendly with them. I've been going in there for 20 years. And he said to me, the owner, they're two brothers. What do you think about this economy? I said, I think we're making a mistake in some respects here, which which I've talked about last week and I want to talk to again as the show progresses. I said, you know, they all say they want to give you guys low interest loans. He said, Mark, I'm dead in one week. I said, "One, one week. I'm dead in one week. This business is done in one week. He employs off and on 20, 25 people, full-time and part-time. He's a franchise. He's got a franchise. He says his business is dead in one week. What does this have to do with voter registration? Nothing. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. I've been talking a lot about the four pillars or purposes of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. We focus quite a bit on the first pillar of learning. But what about character? Learning the right things to the point where you truly know them is a rigorous business. It isn't possible without strong character. Hillsdale's great president, Larry Arnn, and his outstanding faculty at Hillsdale know that intellectual virtue is meaningless without moral virtue. That having knowledge doesn't mean much if you don't use what you know to serve the good, however possible. And here's an outstanding fact. Every entering freshman at Hillsdale signs an honor code that reads as follows. A Hillsdale College student is honorable in conduct, honest in word and deed, dutiful in study and service, and respectful of the rights of others. Through education, the student rises to self-government. Now, to learn more, visit LevinforHillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. LevinforHillsdale.com. As so we continue to dig into the Pelosi bill. Audits of election results. This is what she's demanding. Same-day registration. Airline carbon emissions control. Corporate diversity requirements. Collect a bargaining for federal workers. Eliminate the post office debt. Expansion of credit for wind and solar. Her bill is tr- almost 1,200, well, a little over 1,100 pages long. To be exact, 1,119 pages. So we're still going through it. So Democrats in Congress aren't trying to rescue our country. They're not trying to rescue our economy. They're not trying to help union members, non-union members, middle class, lower middle class, poor people. They're willing to hold America hostage to rescue their own partisan agenda. As Clyburn put it, the number three Democrat in the House, Friday, he said to the Democrats in their caucus meeting, Quote, it's a tremendous opportunity to restructure things to fit our vision. The Democrat Party is the enemy. That's right, I said it, and I mean it. The Democrat Party is the enemy of the people. It's the enemy of the country. Here we are, as the president says, in a war against this virus. And what the hell do they do? They launch a war against we the people. Of course, like all the leftists, they launch a war against us in our own name. I want to ask union members and non-union members alike, do you think this bill should include audits of election results, same-day voter registration, airline carbon emissions, corporate diversity requirements, expansion of wind and solar credits, and on and on? Do you? Well, that's what this old, feeble, fascistic socialist is doing. I'm joined by that utter, contemptible, schmucky Schumer. I'll be right back. I've been talking a lot about the four pillars or purposes of the Hillsdale College mission learning, character, faith, and freedom. We focus quite a bit on the first pillar of learning. But what about character? Learning the right things to the point where you truly know them is a rigorous business. It isn't possible without strong character. Hillsdale's great president, Larry Arnn, and his outstanding faculty at Hillsdale know that intellectual virtue is meaningless without moral virtue, that having knowledge doesn't mean much if you don't use what you know to serve the good, however possible. And here's an outstanding fact. Every entering freshman at Hillsdale signs an honor code that reads as follows. A Hillsdale College student is honorable in conduct, honest in word and deed, dutiful in study and service, and respectful of the rights of others. Through education, the student rises to self-government. Now, to learn more, visit LevinForHillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. LevinForHillsdale.com. We have, uh, it's an honor to have House Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy with us. Sir, how are you? I can't hear Mr. McCarthy. i here. you are. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay, but what the hell is going on with Pelosi and the Democrats in the House now? They
2: are playing pure politics. You know, I, came, I flew back on a red eye to have a meeting uh, on Sunday Mitch McConnell had worked this in a bipartisan, bicameral, um, bottom-up, and they had pretty much an agreement. Now they want to flex their muscle to try to put same-day voter registration, all these union requirements, all the climate change stuff in, and they're holding up and hurting the American public.
0: I mean I I hope – the Republicans are all going to get to microphones and television cameras and tell the American people exactly what the hell's going on here. This is a shocking. I've, I've, I've never seen anything like this.
2: In all my years of politics, I've never seen something this bad because what they're doing with every day and every hour they're holding it up, they're harming people. They're harming the small businesses. They're making decisions around the kitchen table where they're going to lay people off.
0: The other thing is what is the, this Democrat Party hate on for American enterprise? American enterprise is going to give us the therapies, the vaccines, the masks and all the rest. What is this hate on for American business? I do
2: not understand because the ingenuity of this American, of America, we're going to solve this problem. Do you know it took us two years to be in a clinical trial for a vaccine when it came to SARS? We are already in a clinical trial. People in Washington are taking the vaccine in their arm right now. It's going to take us a year away. But look how fast we are. And this is the problem. Had China been honest with us? We could have contained this in China if they would have let our scientists, our doctors, and our researchers in there. Now the propaganda of China—you know what they're saying? America must have created this because they're going too fast to already have a vaccine. It's mm-hmm. because of our private sector that we're allowed to do that.
0: Private sector. What's interesting? A lot of these these uh, foreign countries and governments that have this universal single single payer government controlled system—they're way behind. Italy, the UK many of these European countries and so forth. And yet, that's not going to be recognized as a great deficiency going forward, is it?
2: No, it won't be. But the World Health Organization right now says the epicenter is Europe. And a couple reasons why that happened, because our president, President Trump, took the action at the very beginning not to let China come into America. And then he held Europe back as well. Now you're seeing how smart that move was. But more importantly... John Hopkins did a, a research a while back that said America's best prepared to handle something like this because of our health care system. Those socialist systems will not work. But more importantly, can you really trust the number you're getting out of Iran or North Korea saying nobody's there or China's number? We know that's not true.
0: Is Nancy Pelosi even trying to make an effort to consult with you about this bill?
2: You know what's most interesting? She was very upset that uh, Leader McConnell actually allowed the committees to work on it and craft it. She thought, no, it should just be the four leaders. She doesn't believe in um, working through the system, and that's actually a better way to do it where you have the committees of expertise get there. She's holding it up, and she wrote a letter to her own members congratulating them holding the bill. In the Senate, And remember what that vote is, Mark. It's a vote for cloture. It's not a vote on the bill. It's to move the process further. And if you move that process further, there's a better hope that in the market and in the decision-making, whether around the corporate boards or the kitchen table, that they're going to keep people on and not lay them off.
0: Isn't it amazing how the president is able to work with all these governors, even governors that don't like him and he doesn't like, whether it's Newsom or Cuomo and so forth? But Pelosi cannot work with you. She will not work with you. She will not work with McConnell. I think this is a personality and character issue at this point. It is. Think for one
2: moment. Think about what Cuomo and Gavin Newsom say as their home state against President Trump. Listen to what they're saying about him now as the commander-in-chief in in a time of crisis. They congratulate him. They tell him they're working well together, fantastic. The president has sent two Navy ships now to both states so they could have a hospital. He's increased the funding for them. He's worked worked with them day and night on this process. And they have nothing but positive things to say because you know what? They watch him as a leader. And they understand what he's doing is correct, but they can work with him, even though everything they said about him. Pelosi will take any moment she can to either impeach him or try to make a political advantage. Why would she be requesting to have campaign voter registration inside a bill to deal with a crisis with coronavirus? Mm
0: -hmm. Same-day registration. I can't imagine anything could go wrong with that. Can you, Mr. McCarthy? Oh, no. And
2: early voting, that's exactly what they did in California and they were able to beat seven, half of all the Republicans there because they harvested ballots. That's what they want to do nationwide. They want to take this place. And then they want to bail out all those states that didn't pay their pensions. They want to transform the pension when it comes to newspapers, for ones that they like. They want the federal government to pay for it. That has nothing to do with coronavirus. What did you say about newspapers? They want to pay the publication of the, cor- the pensions for McClatchy. They want to put that in this bill. What?
0: Yes. Have you read this thing? Well, I'd say it's 1,100 and some pages long. I'm still going through it. Yeah, and they criticize the Senate bill, which is
2: only 500 pages. They, they tell the airlines, okay, if we give you money, then you have to be carbon neutral by 2025, so you're going to be out of business. That they do another billion them. for cash for clunkers. They require every small business. Maybe you're sitting in Bakersfield, California. If you take assistance, now your minimum wage has to be
0: $15. Is there a list of this somewhere? Yeah.
2: We're just reading through it. I'm going to send it to you. They put in another – the OSHA requirements on hospitals. They want um, the bargaining, collective bargaining and carve-outs for big labor. They want to increase every collective bargaining. Same day voter registration, they want to bail out the postal service for the union pension fund. they want to have all the student loans thirty five thousand dollars of every student loan or thirty thousand I believe it is to forgive
0: this is uh, this is appallingly diabolical, yes, but what they 're really doing here because they
2: 're taking every liberal idea they have out there I mean. This is going to the extreme, but they're doing it in the middle of a crisis, thinking we'll have to just accept it.
0: Well, I wouldn't accept it. Or I not. certainly not. Good. I'd fight it every step of the way, and I hope they don't buckle in the Senate. It looked like Leader McConnell was pretty damn angry today.
2: You know what? I give Leader McConnell a lot of credit. He is stand, he's standing firm, but more importantly, he's got legislation that will actually help And while the Democrats are holding it up for their own personal gain. They're just being selfish about it. They're not looking for solutions.
0: So you're going to put a list of all this together so I can get it out to uh, millions and millions of people, I will
2: do it. We're reading through it right now, 1,200 pages, but it's unbelievable what they request.
0: And the American people need to know what they're up to. They need to know. I mean, listen, you're going through a list of things. Most union members, most non-union members, blue-collar people, white-collar people, middle-class, lower-middle-class poor people— they don't care about any of this crap.
2: Oh, I know. And you know what else they do to save money? They take funding away from ICE.
0: Funding away from ICE? Yes, inside here. So enforcement of our immigration laws in the interior of the country, yeah. they, want to, they want to cripple these guys. Yeah. I, I tell you, it's, it's absolutely – who put this bill together? Do you know?
2: Well, it was Nancy Pelosi and all the Democrats – put their wish list together on what they would do and to think you would not want these people in charge
0: oh my god oh my god this is what they do during a crisis can you imagine
2: yeah they, they need to expand the tax credits for solar and wind in a crisis of the coronavirus mm-hmm. new emission standards for airlines and require the full offset of 2025 mm-hmm. increase collective bargaining What does any of that have to do with saving somebody their job and fighting a disease?
0: And you know what? They can't win these issues on their own. They can't get the votes for them. They can't elect the people for them. And so this is what they do. They use a crisis to advance their political agenda while people are sweating it out. And some people are dying, for God's sakes.
2: This is Rahm Emanuel's theory what he gave them don't let a crisis go to waste that's exactly what they're trying to do but they're harming the american public by holding it up to try to hold us hostage for this that we will
0: not agree to and she won't sit down with you will she no because she figures she doesn't have to she went and put this bill out
2: trying to stop the senate bill
0: Well, shame on the Senate Democrats, who were going along just fine, apparently. And then uh, do they report to Nancy Pelosi? It appears that Schumer does.
2: I'll tell you this. Harry Reid would never allow Nancy Pelosi to run him like Schumer's doing.
0: That's an excellent point. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Schumer's doing this?
2: I've never seen anything like it. He... If you listen to Schumer just less than six hours before, he said the process was working well. They think they're going to come to an agreement. And next thing you know, Nancy flies into town. We have to go to a meeting, and Schumer can no longer be for it.
0: It's amazing how she has control over him. Even with the Senate trial, she was controlling him on impeachment. Yeah, told him what he had to do. We're going to impeach him. All right. Well, you guys keep fighting. I don't think the country's going to... You know, when this is all said and done, I don't think the country is going to be very pleased with what's taking place here.
2: No. Look, the country expects us to find solutions. They want us to – this division has got to stop. We've got to deliver. And that's what we've been working on. And now they're even stopping the process to have the debate.
0: They're not voting against the bill. They're voting against allowing allowed to have the debate. Just so the nation understands, they won't bring the bill up for a discussion on the floor of the Senate. They're killing it even though they worked on it. Yes, correct correct even though they were close to voting on it correct yes she comes in the town and tells them no and so every single democrat but one senator from alabama democrat that is uh, buckles under it's pretty boy she's got a lot of power you gotta admit that mr mccarthy oh yeah could you imagine harry Reid allowing her to go and run the senate they go the other way yeah all right kevin mccarthy thanks for coming on we appreciate it thank you all right god bless Once we get that list, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to read it to you. Now you know what's going on. And you're facing, many of you are facing real, real trouble, real difficulty. And you just need to understand it's not Donald Trump. He's doing everything humanly possible as president of the United States. He's not a governor. He's not in charge of the state hospitals. He's not in charge of the state beds. That would be Cuomo and Newsom and those guys. He's not in charge of the machinery that are in hospitals. Those are the states. They're in charge of those. If they're, sh- if they're caught short, it's on your governor. It's not on the president. He's taken everything they have at the federal level, and he's giving it to the states. They're buying everything they can on the open market, giving it to the states. When the states are competing with the federal government for the same thing, the federal government's obviously pulling out and allowing the states to get it. The president has been on the phone With one company after another, they get production ramped up. Companies that don't even produce this stuff are switching over their assembly lines with union members and non-union members working. We're Americans. Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi wants to deliver for her party. Whereas the president's trying to deliver for the country. Keep that in mind. This is very, very important to understand. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. I've been talking a lot about the four pillars or purposes of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. We focus quite a bit on the first pillar of learning. But what about character? Learning the right things to the point where you truly know them is a rigorous business. It isn't possible without strong character. Hillsdale's great president, Larry Arnn, and his outstanding faculty at Hillsdale know that intellectual virtue is meaningless without moral virtue. That having knowledge doesn't mean much if you don't use what you know to serve the good, however possible. And here's an outstanding fact. Every entering freshman at Hillsdale signs an honor code that reads as follows. A Hillsdale College student is honorable in conduct, honest in word and deed, dutiful in study and service, and respectful of the rights of others. Through education, the student rises to self-government. Now, to learn more, visit LevinforHillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. LevinforHillsdale.com. All right. Tom Cotton put out a tweet. You want to hear more about what's in the Nancy Pelosi bill that's holding everything up? Number 1, corporate pay statistics by race and race statistics for all corporate boards at companies receiving assistance. Number 2, bailing out all current debt of the postal service. Number 3, required early voting in all states. Number 4, required same-day voter registration in all states. Number five, $10,000 bailout for student loans. Number six, for companies accepting assistance, one-third of board members must be chosen by the workers. Number seven, provisions on official time for union collective bargaining. That is, eliminating it, but making sure, providing for it, but eliminating the timing of it. Number eight, full offset of airline emissions by 2025. That'll kill them. Number nine, greenhouse gas statistics for individual flights. Number 10, retirement plans for community newspaper employees. Funding them. Number 11, $15 minimum wage for all companies receiving assistance. Number 12, permanent paid sick leave at companies receiving assistance. So what the Democrat Party is seeking to do is to promote the Democrat Party, the Democrat Party constituency, and this will kill businesses once we get through this. This is how the Democrats treat a pandemic and a virus. This is what they do. They are detestable. They are loathsome. As fellow citizens suffer, this is what Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, Clyburn, Schumer, and the rest of the reprobates are up to. And the Republican Party better not go for this under any circumstances because the American people didn't vote for this. We have an election in November. This is where they want to run on. Then they can have their mentally deficient candidate try to articulate them. But this isn't what we voted for. This is supposed to be an emergency. And by the way, Next, I want to talk about the Republicans. little too much socialism there, boys. Not enough capitalism. All these reporters at the White House are in the wrong place. They need to be stalking Pelosi, stalking Schumer, and asking them serious questions. But as I wrote last year, unfreedom of the press, if we don't have a vigorous, serious press in this country, but instead a Democrat Party, progressive, social activism press, this is what you get. I am breaking the news here tonight. I'm not a newsroom. I'm one person on what is in this bill that Nancy Pelosi is using to blackmail the country, to blackmail union members, to blackmail non-union members, to blackmail blue-collar workers, white-collar workers, to blackmail assembly line workers, office workers, to blackmail small businesses, medium-sized businesses, large companies, the airline industry. Nancy Pelosi is blackmailing America. She's an old, decrepit, fascistic buffoon. And I hope I'm quoted, and I hope it's repeated over and over and over again. It is she who needs to be removed from office. This is a disgrace. And you keep in mind, every Democrat but one in the Senate basically supports her bill. Every Democrat in the House, as far as I know, supports her bill. There are no moderates left, ladies and gentlemen, none. They're all radical, out of control leftists. And you, you are going to pay the price.
2: I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.
1: He's here. He's here.
0: I want to wish her a happy birthday. Greatest kids in the world. My wife and I have the greatest kids in the world. Really do. Well, I know your kids are great too, but for us, our kids are the greatest. You know, we started a discussion last week, and it seems to have picked up steam. That we don't need to destroy our economy to destroy this virus, that we don't need to shut down the whole country. To attack this virus, that Republicans don't need to adapt, or excuse me, to adopt failed socialist policies to help preserve the economy. And I think this is what the president means—that the cure being worse than the problem. And we talked about that extensively, but I need to talk about it some more. I said last week. Even in a military operation, you don't start dropping nukes on a country and blow the country off the face of the earth. You make strategic decisions. Well, as far as I'm concerned, you do the same thing when it comes to medicine. And if you're going to do things economically, that is, the feds, if you're going to interfere in the economy, you do the same thing. But on the medical side and on the economic side, we seem to be, at least initially, attacking everything and anything. You know what happens when you do that? Your resources are not plentiful enough to do the right things, necessarily. That is, you're spread thin. And so a virus may actually last longer and spread further. Or an economy may go deeper and deeper and deeper south. That's what Franklin Roosevelt did after the stock market crash. He took a very bad recession. and He turned it into a decade-long depression. You actually have idiots on TV and radio who claim to be conservatives who are big fans of Franklin Roosevelt and think we ought to do the same. What do you think Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and those, those frauds are doing on the Hill? They view this as a new, new deal. This is their opportunity. But that situation has nothing to do with this situation, as a matter of fact. And look, I'm a pedestrian on this, but I've studied what's available publicly on what they did in South Korea, what they did in Japan, what they did in Singapore, versus versus what's been done in Italy and in the EU countries. The countries in Asia were very targeted in what they did. They didn't shut down their entire economies. South Korea... Pretty much got through this in four to five weeks. Italy is suffering for a lot of reasons. Italy has the kind of health care system that Bernie Sanders keeps promoting. A single-payer, government-run healthcare system. So does Britain. And they react very slowly. And they really are caught short. Really caught short. You think we have it bad? We don't compared to these other countries. We have a vibrant private sector that the Democrat Party, Pelosi, Schumer, Sanders, Biden, and the rest, seek to smother. It is the private sector where the solutions come from. This crisis should prove that point. The government was caught short with too few beds. The states run the hospitals pretty much. And the private sector is coming in behind them. The Obama administration used up all the federal masks, so there's none in inventory. The private sector is coming behind them. Ventilators. The states don't have enough ventilators, so GM is going to produce ventilators, and I can go on and on and on. The problem here, in my view, is that some of these brilliant healthcare professionals, scientists, And medicine experts in the federal government. Dr. Fauci is one of them. He's worked there half a century. I had him on my show last night. They don't see the entire picture. They see their own area, which they should. That's what they're experts in. But that's not how society works. That's not how society works. If we have 20 or 30% unemployment, we're going to have a much bigger problem than this virus. You know what we're going to have? Riots. Civil unrest. Second Amendment issues. That's what I fear. That's why I'm so aggressively, aggressively addressing Pelosi and what she's up to. No damn good. But is the science and is medicine on my side as a pedestrian like you looking at this? It may well be. We talked about this last week. I have posted a number of these articles. These aren't kooks that I'm referencing. These are experts. Every bit as much the experts as the other experts. There's a fellow by the name of David Katz. I've referenced him. President of True Health Initiative and the founding director of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center. Does he sound like a kook? Do those credentials sound like the credentials of a kook? He's a specialist in preventative medicine and public health, director, founding director of the Yale University, Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center. And he's been published all over the place. And here's what he wrote on Sunday, maybe been Saturday. We routinely differentiate between two kinds of military action. This is interesting because I brought this military action stuff up. It's very relevant the inevitable carnage and collateral damage of diffuse hostilities and the precision of a surgical strike methodically targeted to the sources of our particular peril the latter when executed well minimizes resources and unintended consequences alike as we battle the coronavirus pandemic and heads of state declare that we are at war with this contagion the same dichotomy applies exactly what I've pointed out This can be open war with all the fallout that portends, or it can be something more surgical. The United States and much of the world so far have gone in for the former. I write now with a sense of urgency to make sure we consider the surgical approach while there's still time. Now, we have talked about this surgical approach all last week, and the brilliant Daniel Horowitz wrote a similar piece in the Conservative Review, which I read to you, making the same argument. And you can make this whether it's medicine or the economy. Outbreaks tend to be isolated when pathogens move through water or food. And of greater scope when they travel by widespread vectors like fleas, mosquitoes, or the air itself. Like the coronavirus pandemic, the infamous flu pandemic of 1918 was caused by, a, by viral particles transmitted by coughing and sneezing. Pandemics occur when an entire population is vulnerable, that is, not immune to a given pathogen capable of efficiently spreading itself. Immunity occurs when our immune system has developed antibodies against a germ, either naturally or as a result of a vaccine, and is fully prepared should exposure recur. The immune system response is so robust that the invading germ is eradicated before symptomatic disease can develop. Importantly, That robust immune response also prevents transmission. If a germ can't secure its hold on your body, your body no longer serves as a vector to send it forward to the next potential host. This is true even that next person is not yet immune. When enough of us represent such dead ends for viral transmission, spread through the population is blunted and eventually terminated. This is called herd immunity. What we know so far about the coronavirus makes it a unique case for the potential application of a herd immunity approach, a strategy viewed as desirable side effect in the Netherlands and briefly considered in the United Kingdom. The data from South Korea, which I keep bringing up, where tracking the coronavirus has been by far the best to date, indicate that as much as 99% of active cases in the general population are mild, and do not require specific medical treatment. The small percentage of cases that do require such services are highly concentrated among those aged 60 and older, and further, so the older people are. Other things being equal, those over age 70 appear at three times the mortality risk as those aged 60 to 69, and those over age 80 at nearly twice the mortality risk of those aged 70 to 79. These conclusions are corroborated by the data from Wuhan, China, which show a higher death rate but an almost identical distribution. The higher death rate in China may be real, but is perhaps a result of less widespread testing. South Korea promptly and uniquely started testing the apparently healthy population at large, finding the mild asymptomatic cases of COVID-19 other countries are overlooking. The experience of the Diamond Princess cruise ship, which houses a contained older population, proves the point the death rate among that insular and uniformly exposed population is roughly 1%. Now we have to date fewer than 200 deaths, now we have 499, from the coronavirus in the United States. A small data set from which to draw big conclusions still is entirely aligned with the data from other countries. The deaths have been mainly clustered among the elderly, those with significant chronic illnesses such as diabetes and heart disease, and those in both groups. This is not true of infectious scourges such as influenza. The flu hits the elderly and chronically ill hard too, but it also kills children. Trying to create herd immunity among those most likely to recover from infection while also isolating the young and the old is daunting to say the least. How does one allow exposure and immunity to develop in parents without exposing their young children? The clustering of complications and death from COVID-19 among the elderly and chronically ill, but not children, there have been only a few rare deaths in children, suggests that we could achieve the crucial goals of social distancing, that is, saving lives and not overwhelming our medical system, by preferentially protecting the medically frail and those over age 60 and in particular those over 70 and 80 from exposure. Why does this matter? I am deeply concerned that the social, economic, and public health consequences of this near-total meltdown of normal life, schools and businesses closed, gatherings banned, will be long-lasting and calamitous, possibly graver than the direct toll of the virus itself. The stock market will bounce back in time but many businesses never will. The unemployment, impoverishment and despair likely to result will be public health scourges of the first order. Worse, I fear our efforts will do little to contain the virus because we have a resource constrained, fragmented, perennially underfunded public health system. Distributing this is what I've been arguing, distributing such limited resources so widely so shallowly and so haphazardly, is a formula for failure. How certain are you of the best ways to protect your most vulnerable loved ones? How readily can you get tested? We've already failed to respond as decisively as China or South Korea. Well, China, of course, are dragging people out of their homes and lack the means to respond like Singapore. We are following in Italy's wake at risk of seeing our medical system overwhelmed twice. First, when people rush to get tested, for coronavirus, and again, when the especially vulnerable succumb to severe infection and require hospital beds. Yes, in more and more places, we are limiting gatherings uniformly, a tactic I call horizontal interdiction, when containment policies are applied to the entire population without consideration of the risk for severe infection. Now, I'm going to take a break, but I want to go on with this crucially important piece by this expert. He's no backbencher. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. So I've been watching these riots around the country. I'm absolutely sickened. I'm sure most of you are. You know, John Locke once said, law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. Where there's no law, there's no freedom. You want to let rioters burn down your cities? There goes your freedom. You want to get rid of cops? There goes your freedom. You want to elect Joe Biden? There goes your freedom. As you've heard me say many times, I have a liberty agenda. And at Levin TV, which airs on Blaze TV, you can watch this come to life with our conservative pro-American content that reveres our Constitution and champions our individual freedoms. This is what we do each and every day. And there's never been a better time to check us out. Just go to LevinTV.com, L-E-V-I-N-T-V.com, and sign up today for a free 30-day trial. That's right, we're going to give you a full month of Levin TV and all the other great shows on Blaze TV at no cost to you, but only if you subscribe right now at LevinTV.com. All right, I want to continue this crucially important article. This show obviously has a lot of influence far and wide, and I want to continue pushing back on the centralization of decision-making, whether it's medicine or economics. Dr. Katz, the expert, goes on, but as the workforce is laid off in mass, our family is one adult child home for that reason already. In colleges closed, we have another two young adults back home for this reason. Young people of indeterminate infectious status are being sent home to huddle with their families nationwide. Have you thought about that? They've closed all the school systems where children are not in danger. And they're sending them home, they say, because they don't want them to spread the contagion. To whom are they sending them home? To parents and grandparents, which is his point. For all you know, you're infecting every family in the country. College kids who otherwise wouldn't be home, who may be the biggest carriers and yet have the least problem with it. And he goes on, because we lack widespread testing they may be carrying the virus and transmitting it to their 50-something parents and 70- or 80-something grandparents. If there are any clear guidelines for behavior within families, what I call vertical interdiction, I've not seen it. Such is the collateral damage of this diffuse form of warfare aimed at flattening the epidemic curve generally rather than preferentially protecting the especially vulnerable. I believe we may be ineffectively fighting the contagion even as we're causing economic collapse. There's another and much overlooked liability in this approach. If we succeed in slowing the spread of the coronavirus from torrent to trickle, then when does the society-wide disruption end? When will it be safe for healthy children and young teachers to return to school, much less older teachers and teachers with chronic illnesses? When will it be safe for the workforce to repopulate the workplace, given that some are at the risk group for severe infection? When would it be safe to visit loved ones in nursing homes and hospitals when once again my grandparents pick up their grandchildren? There are many possible answers, but the most likely one is we just don't know. We could wait until there's an effective treatment, a vaccine, or transmission rates fall to undetectable levels. But what if those are a year or more away? Then we suffer the full extent of social disruption the virus might cause for all those months. The cost, not just in money are staggering to contemplate. So what's the alternative? Well, we could focus our resources on testing and protecting in every possible way. All those people the data indicate are especially vulnerable to severe infection, the elderly, people with chronic diseases, and the immunologically, uh, not easy for me, compromised. Folks, you've listened to this program. In my own way, I've been saying this. Focus all our resources, and I've said it online, and hammer the areas, hammer the areas where this contagion has been uh, present, and protect the people who are most vulnerable. To be sure, while mortality is high, uh, highly concentrated in select groups, doesn't stop there. There are poignant, heart rendering tales of severe infection and death from COVID nineteen in younger people for reasons we don't know. We found over time the younger people are also especially vulnerable to the virus we could expand the at-risk category and extend protections to them. We've already identified many of the especially vulnerable. Detailed list of criteria could be generated by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. There's a final piece of this I want to read to you, but we have a special guest, at least scheduled, and I'll do that after we have our guest. But stick with us. We're on the cutting edge here. I'm just using logic based on the research that I'm seeing out there. I'll be right back. It's been reported that Americans are overpaying on car insurance by over $21 billion. But searching for a better deal can take hours and typically results in a barrage of unwanted spam calls. Until now, thanks to TheZebra.com. free you can save up to six hundred and seventy dollars a year using the zebra.com whatever your economic situation the zebra is committed to helping you save how much can you save on car and home insurance go today and start saving at the zebra.com slash levin that's the slash levin spelled t-h-e-z-e-b-r-a.com slash l-e-v-i-n I cannot hear Dr. Mark Siegel. Ah, uh, we just lost him. We're going to try and get him back. That's a good thing. And while we're waiting for Dr. Mark Siegel, I want to tell you something. Let's talk about your mortgage. Are you sure you're getting the best deal possible? Now, what if I told you there's a company out there that can save you $500 to $1,000 a month? And all you have to do is make a 10-minute call to get started. It's true, but only when you call American Financing. They're a great company. I love these people. It's a family-owned company. You get a free mortgage review from a dedicated mortgage consultant. So there's no pressure, no upfront hidden fees, and now is the time to strike. Just a simple conversation around ways you can save. Maybe it's a lower rate, shorter term, debt consolidation, or dropping mortgage insurance. Look at all those options and more, helping you to decide if a new mortgage is right for you. Plus, you don't have to restart your loan term. Not every lender can do that, but American Financing can. Make a 10-minute call. Get your free mortgage review, 800, 888, rather, 900-1828. That's 888 or go online to AmericanFinancing.net. Doctor, yep. There you go. Dr. Mark Siegel, how are you, sir? Hey, Mark, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for your public service out there, and uh, it's very important what you have to say. Um. I want to ask you a question. There's two schools of thought now. One is, we're spreading our resources thin, hospitals, medical, medicines, and all the rest, by attacking everything. Uh, rather than attacking the populations as best we can and the locations as best we can, we're sending college students home who might be infected and might infect their parents and grandparents. What do you think of all this? Should we be taking another look at it?
3: You are a very smart person, and I think what we need to do is focus in on the hot spots. And what are the hotspots, the areas, the epicenters, like New York, like San Francisco, like Seattle, and really put our resources on that. And what should those resources resources be? Testing. We should do rapid testing of everyone in the epicenter that could possibly have this. And as soon as we figure out who they are and who their contacts are, we should be separating them from the general population Mm -hmm. and then monitoring closely those at the greatest risk. Instead of shutting down the entire economy— in areas where there isn't a lot of virus. I'm not saying that I don't believe that there isn't some need for some of this, you know, can't be in a place with more than 10 people, Right. shelter in place. It's not that, that, is, that I'm against that. I just think I'd like to see far more of the other that I said.
0: Almost like a military operation. That is, you don't, you don't nuke the whole country. What you do is you're, you're prepared in the whole country, but there's certain areas where you really got to – hammer, or conversely, protect, in, certain, in this case, certain age groups. I, I don't understand this. There's another doctor who wrote about this. Why would you send college students home to their parents and grandparents?
3: So they can spread virus?
0: I mean, I don't right. I mean, I mean, the families, I hear the families can watch TV. The families can play Monopoly. Well, the families can, inf- the members can infect each other. Well. Depending you know, on who they
3: are. The theory behind st- closing schools is that things spread very easily in schools, and then you end up with a cauldron. And I think there's also a legal aspect here, Mark, where you don't want to be in a school where it spreads, and then you get liable for it. But Mm -hmm. I I didn't send my child to an Ivy League school so that they could be working online. (laughs) I don't think you can put Ivy over a computer, you know?
0: (laughs) I never thought of that either. Well, then, you're paying a hell of a lot of money for a computer.
3: Yeah, they don't – I know. the same computer that we have in the state colleges, so may, may not be the right time for humor, but I, I,
0: I, I really – It's th- all right. I,
3: I think that they went a little overboard with the school part, way overboard, in fact.
0: You know, I'm getting the I mean, sense. The idea was yeah. if
3: it spreads in the school, then it'll spread outside of school, but we didn't see a lot of school spread.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
3: what, you, what we did instead was the inf- we inflicted the community – and uh, I'm sorry for any uh, – Gen Z or or millennial that doesn't like the word, inflicted the community. We inflicted the community with a lot of younger people who could then spread virus within their community. I mean, when
0: you think about it theoretically, at least, or even practically, doctor, if the younger, the millennials, some of the younger millennials, if they're on college campuses and universities, logically, isn't that where we want them? Rather than, as you're pointing out, rather than in the general population? I think so. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, this is interesting. Now, I tell people I interviewed Dr. Fauci over the weekend. Brilliant, brilliant man. But nobody's perfect, right? There are different doctors with different opinions on this sort of thing, no?
3: Yeah, Fauci is a a genius, and he's very, very smart on this. And he has a certain point of view that has evolved over time. Um, Mm -hmm. He's a little bit different off the record than on the record Mm -hmm. because he has to put up public face that he wants people to follow knowing full well not everyone's following it Mm -hmm. but you know i think he has a measured view off the record Mm -hmm. so so in other words there's a lot of variables and a lot of questions here mark that we haven't answered yet will there be a seasonal pattern to this will it decrease over the summer as other respiratory viruses do less often in pandemics but it might you know will it then resurge in the fall um how about these treatments we're trying are they working can they help? Uh, how much? Here's my most interesting question: How much of this is below the radar because the cases are so mild mm-hmm. that nobody detects them? Today we learned that you could actually have this with just your sense of smell being impaired, and that may be your only symptom or diarrhea. So, you know, we're missing many, probably sixty percent of the cases. We're not even finding.
0: Which means that's good. That's that, good. I was going to say that 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 means that the overwhelming majority are really not so horrible but for those classes of people that's a problem right it means that the death rate is even less
3: no nope. that's right that's right the death rate is even less than we're hearing and it's it's probably less than anyone thinks that's my view of that i think it's a serious virus i yep. think it's something that we don't have a handle on i think it's pretty contagious and I think that the death rate is lower than we realize. I think it's, I think it's low, less than 1%. That's my view.
0: In other words, everyone take it seriously, but let's understand what we're dealing with. I mean, we have, we have people who want to literally, they go on TV and radio and say, let's shut down the economy for two weeks. That's insane. Why would we shut down the economy for two weeks?
3: We have done that. It looks like you're kind of... Have you,
0: have you been in your town lately? I oh, can't find yeah,
3: that's open other than the Dunkin' Donuts.
0: By the way, yeah. doctor, uh, all these people saying, you know, about fast food restaurants, I don't know what the hell I would do without the drive through in the fast food restaurants, be perfectly honest with you.
3: I agree with that. and Or the Dunkin' Donuts, by the way. And, <laughs> and I have to tell you, not all this stuff is well thought out. I went into my local wonderful breakfast place today and it's all takeout. And then the woman says to me, you can't wait here. You have to wait in your car, and I'll bring you the food out. And I'm thinking, how is how does that decrease the risk of spread anyway?
0: Well, not for her, that's for sure. Well, <laughs> listen, you have been terrific. And by the way, there's some therapies out there. I know they say they're anecdotal. But the anecdotal stuff looks pretty good in some of these therapies, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, so I think that's true. There's some evidence that, that hydroxychloroquine and Zethromax work well. There's some evidence that remdesivir, that's been tried in clinical trials now, that that works well. Uh, with the rushing vaccine, they got it in clinical trials now. In one, one case, they have other ones in the offing. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that, that we're going to be able, able to offer something. And by the way, last time you hit me on, I want to mention this again, not to plug my book, False along which naturally started flying as soon as you mentioned it. But I want to point out again that we're using hysteria and worst-case scenarios and mathematical modeling. and You know, we're all going to die, and, and the way the words are delivered, spreading sweeping across the countryside, everyone thinks if they walk out the door without using Clorox, they're going to catch this thing. And that's just not fair to the actual public health situation. It's not helping anybody.
0: You know what bothers me, doctor? And it is the numbers that the TV uh, news shows have. The numbers like this is the number of people who have this number of people who die. We don't do that for any other illness, do we? No,
3: we're, we're, we're I, I thought of this the other night. We're actually instead of the election map, we have this map. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're supposed to be watching the primaries. Instead, we have this and and the number of deaths, you know, but, you know, we're not looking at other diseases at all. We seem to have forgotten it. You know, here's an interesting statistic for you, Mark. In Queens, New York, in March, there has been a 366% increase in ER visits from respiratory problems, flu-like symptoms, shortness of breath, cough, fever. And everyone's listening to you now saying, aha. COVID-19. Well, they tested all those people. 96% of the time, it's something else.
0: Mm-hmm. Our systems is being overwhelmed with people who aren't having the virus. Or seems think to they me. do. Or think they do, which is another reason why, to me, this has to be more focused. And, and I'll I'll get to this later in the show. And same with the, the economic issues. I mean, you can't just be dropping trillions of dollars on the heads of people and expect that to... Uh, to get an economy rolling, or you don't have to answer this, or adopt the Nancy Pelosi list of left-wing projects uh, and expect that, <laughs> that to grow the economy. For
3: that? What government's well, left to pay for that?
0: She won't care. You know, she doesn't care. she
3: bail out everything, but the government gets money from taxes from people that are no longer working, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Last time I checked, look, you, you have been a superstar. You have been absolutely outstanding. You've been on top of this. I cannot thank you enough. What is the name of your book? Again, I want to put it up on my social sites.
3: False Alarm, The Truth About the Epidemic of Fear.
0: False Alarm, Mr. Producer, The Truth About the Epidemic of Fear, where we'll link to Amazon.com. You know, it's a book that's been out there a while, but a lot of people need to look at it. And uh, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Siegel. God bless you.
3: Thanks for having me, Mark. Anytime.
0: Appreciate it. My pleasure. So we'll link to that. He is tops. Absolutely tops. Uh, we'll be right back. Much Levin. Do you know what we do at Levin TV on the Blaze TV network? Well, we give you intelligent content you won't see anywhere else. very important. Stick with me. It's going to be more important than anything you're watching on TV the next hour. Trust me. For all our sakes, we need to avoid crowds any way we can right now. But what if you need to go to the post office? What if you need postage to send out letters and packages? Don't worry. Stamps.com is here to help. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer, the safety and comfort of your own home, office, or anywhere else you're hunkering down right now. Whether you're a small business sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or you're just working from home and need to mail stuff, stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once uh, Once your mail is ready, you just leave it with your mail carrier, schedule a free package pickup, or drop it in the mailbox. No human contact required. It's that simple. Right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in the word BUNKER. You can do this all from home, business or just you and me. That's Stamps.com, enter BUNKER, Stamps.com, enter BUNKER. Again, next hour is very important. I want to play you a clip next hour. Well, just stick with me next hour. I'm telling you, anything else you're listening to or watching to, if you're planning next hour, drop it just this time. Let's go on with Dr. Katz, who's very much in sync with Dr. Siegel here. To be sure, while mortality is highly concentrated in a, in select groups, it doesn't stop there. There are poignant, heart-rendering tales of severe infection and death in younger people, as he points out. Although the reasons we don't know. We've already identified many of the especially vulnerable. Detailed list of criteria could be generated by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, updated daily and circulated widely to health professionals and the public alike. The at-risk population is already subject to the protections of our current policies. Social distancing, medical attention for fever or cough, or several major problems with uh, subsuming the especially vulnerable within the policies now applied to all. First, the medical system is being overwhelmed by those in the lower-risk group seeking its resources, limiting its capacity to direct them to those at the greatest need. Second, health professionals are burdened not just with work demands but also with family demands as schools, colleges, businesses are closed. Third, sending everyone home to huddle together increases mingling across generations that will expose the most vulnerable. And the virus is already circulating widely in the United States, with many cases going undetected. This is like sending innumerable lit matches into patches of Tinder. Right now, it is harder, not easier, to keep the especially vulnerable isolated from all others, including members of their own families who may have been exposed to the virus. If we were to focus on the especially vulnerable, there would be resources to keep them at home, provide them with needed services and coronavirus testing, ...and direct our medical system to their early care. I would favor proactive rather than reactive testing in this group. What a brilliant idea. An early use of most promising antiviral drugs. This cannot be done under current policies... ...as we spread our relatively few test kits across the expanse of a whole population... ...made all the more anxious because society has shut down. This focus on a much smaller portion of the population would allow most of society to return to life as usual and perhaps prevent vast segments of the economy from collapsing. Healthy children could return to school. Healthy adults go back to their jobs. Theaters and restaurants could reopen, though we might be wise to avoid very large social gatherings like stadium sporting events, and concerts for now. So long as we're protecting the truly vulnerable, a sense of calm can be restored to society. Just as important, society as a whole could develop natural herd immunity to the virus. The vast majority of people would develop mild coronavirus infections, while medical resources could focus on those who fell critically ill. Once the wider population had been exposed and, if infected, had recovered and gained natural immunity, the risk to the most vulnerable would fall dramatically. A pivot right now, writes Dr. Katz, from trying to protect all people, to focusing on the most vulnerable remains entirely plausible. With each passing day, however, it becomes more difficult. The path we are on may well lead to uncontained viral contagion and monumental collateral damage to our society and economy. A more surgical approach is what we need. This is what the president's been talking about at his press conference today. You realize this president has been holding a press conference for an hour and a half? I don't know of any other president who could have done this. Joe Biden he can't even keep his lunch down for an hour and a half. He can't even keep his dentures in his mouth for an hour and a half. The point is, this doctor's right. And Dr. Siegel's right. And no braggadocia, but last week, I was right. My friend Daniel Horowitz was right. Focus on the problem and attack it. The people who are vulnerable... Proactive testing, treatment, protection from the general society. Not the general society protected from itself. It can never work. It's too big. And it has opposite consequences. We're sending college kids and have home to their family, including the elderly. How does that make any sense? There they are at colleges and universities where we need them. Perfect. Should we be treating people in nursing homes? Treating people in assisted living homes? Local communities could help in this regard. We know where the problem communities are. So you've got geographic identity and you have the identity of the most vulnerable. Now, it won't be perfect. Things will happen, but it'll be more effective. I agree with this, and I can tell the President of the United States, I can tell I haven't spoken to him. But based on this, he's moving in that direction to the resistance, I think, of some of his health public health advisors, but certainly to the resistance of the media, which doesn't comprehend any of this, or chooses not to. Very important hour. I'll be right back. Editorial writers, op-ed writers, if you will, radio hosts, TV hosts have been very wrong about a lot of this, demanding the president absolutely go extreme and radical in all this. They do him a grave in the nation, a grave disservice. I'm glad you're here. This is a very, very important hour. I want to take a little time and walk through things with you, so I hope you'll just relax a little bit while I do this. We have governors and others saying that what we should do is only essential people in essential jobs, only they should be permitted to work. Non-essential people should be forced to stay home in non-essential jobs. A dear friend of mine said this to me. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I have several dear friends who you know. This is one of them. And I said to my dear friend, well, what does that mean? What's an essential job and what's a non-essential job and who decides? Who knows enough to know what's important? I gave you the example last week. You have a piece of meat that you purchase from the supermarket or a piece of fish or maybe chicken and it's wrapped in cellophane and so forth. You're the end user. How did it get there? Well, there's a farmer, you know, there's a rancher, but there's more than that. What about the bread on your table? How did it get there? Well, you know, you need a lot of stuff, ladies and gentlemen, like fertilizer, like tractors, like fuel for tractors, Mechanics. People who repair things. You need barns. You need to repair barns. They need roofs. Some of them need electricity. It's infinite. To bring food to our table. How about the truckers? They need to eat. Who provides them with food? Who builds the trucks? What about mechanics? Where do we get our tires from? You can go on and on. What about the supermarkets? They need to have utilities. Some things need to be frozen. Some things need to be at regular temperature. Who packages these things? And where does the cellophane come from, or the plastic, or the cardboard, and all the rest? Who's going to manufacture that? Are those all essential jobs? I would think so. And others we can't even think of. Who produces the labels? So you know what you're purchasing. That'll put in package of the various food and so forth. Oh, very, very important. Toilet paper. Many of you like toilet paper all of a sudden. we well, actually have to grow trees. You have to have lumberjacks. You have to fell the trees. You have to process the trees. Where do you process them? Where do you get the saws? What if you need new saws? You got to move the trees, right, from the woods or the forest... What are you going to move them with, a truck? Where are they going to go, to a warehouse, to a mill? Where do you think these things come from? And there's a thousand steps in between before they wind up in your house, in your business, in your car. And so I want to remind you, when governors and pundits talk about, well, what's the big deal? Essential people will continue to work, and those who aren't so essential won't work. I want to remind you of the story, I, Pencil, adapted from the 1958 essay by Leonard E. Reed, who was a brilliant man. This is the version by the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Cut, one, go. This is the world we live in.
4: If we weren't surrounded by it every day, if we didn't take it for granted, we'd be dumbstruck by its very intricacy and brilliance. This is an ordinary, familiar wooden pencil. You might think a pencil is simple. Chances are you've been using one since before you could even read or write. But just because it's familiar doesn't mean it's simple. In fact, it's complicated, elaborate, beautiful, elegant. Its very existence is too improbable for any one person to truly comprehend. These are the basic materials that go into a pencil. Graphite, cedar, metal, and rubber. But if you had all the elements of a pencil right in front of you, could you make a pencil? It's not as easy as you might think. In fact, no single person on the face of the earth could do it without the help of countless others. And this is the key to understanding the world. A pencil, just like you and me, is the end result of a vast and intricate family tree, a symphony of human activity that spans the globe. Through their work and knowledge, a vast number of people have had a hand in making this simple pencil. Unlike your family tree, this one begins with an actual tree. The most immediate ancestor of the pencil is a cedar tree in the Pacific Northwest. But the loggers who harvest the timber are also its ancestors. And these men don't work alone. They in turn are assisted by the people and industries that produce the saws, rope, countless other tools that they use. These are also the ancestors of our pencil. As is the waitress at a nearby diner who sells the loggers lunch, to say nothing of the thousands of people involved in producing that simple midday meal. Across time and space, the web grows. Consider the roads, trucks, ships, communication systems, and the people who design, build, and maintain them. All of them are necessary to bring the lumber to the mills and the slat factories that process them. All of them are also the ancestors of the pencil. And even with the work of all these people, so far all we have is a stained wooden slat, a naked half of a wooden body of a pencil, But its family tree is larger and more extensive. The graphite is mined in China and Sri Lanka. At the pencil factory, it's mixed with clay and heat and other materials before it's extruded, dried, and baked in a kiln. People from different continents, different cultures, cooperate to bring these materials together with waxes and kilns and equipment from across the world. These, too, are the ancestors of the pencil. And the same is true of the eraser. With ingredients from around the world, it's the end result of a similarly complex and exotic branch of the family tree. As is the ferrule, the metal band made from material that is mined, refined, and shipped from all over the world. Each part of the pencil is the result of the collaboration and cooperation of millions of people. Together, they form a process that is constantly changing and adapting. A change in the availability or cost of material from one place might make another source more desirable, and the process changes and adapts fluidly. And there is a fact that's still more astounding. The absence of a mastermind, of anyone dictating these countless actions which bring a pencil into being... Each member of this family tree supplies only a small amount of the necessary know-how needed to make a pencil. They do so voluntarily, not because they necessarily want pencils or like pencils, but because by working to create them, they exchange their labor and skills for the wages to let them buy what they want and need. What you're seeing is the market at work. The spontaneous configuration of creative human energies of millions of people with their various skills and talents, organizing voluntarily in response to human necessity and desire, as if led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of the intention. Every second we are alive, we benefit from the products of voluntary, spontaneous cooperation. This is the modern world. It's miraculous. It's intricate. And it gets better every day, so long as people are free to interact with each other. If we can leave the creative energies of humankind uninhibited,
0: there's no limit to what we can accomplish. Mm -hmm. And there we are with our abrupt ending, but the point is, everyone's essential. All these jobs are essential, unless the business you're in determines it's not, but... For the government to say, for pundits to say, for politicians to say, for health professionals to say, only those in essential jobs will be allowed to leave their homes, is insane. They have no comprehension of what it takes to bring a necessity to you. None whatsoever. And these economic ideas that are being thrown around on Capitol Hill are incredibly destructive. Even the Republican ideas. Even this Republican bill that the Democrats killed, the $1.8 trillion bill, is a disaster. And what the Democrats want to do is fascistic socialism. The Republicans Soft socialism. But it's not gonna help. One point eight trillion dollars. Do you know what you could do with a one point eight trillion dollars? I could be wrong. I think that's like eighteen thousand billion, Mr. Producer. Or eighteen hundred billion. Somebody smarter than I'll figure that out. It's a piece the other day in the Wall Street Journal by Arthur Laffer and Stephen Moore. Democrats want to repeat the 2009 strategy of pay Americans not to work. President Trump is negotiating with Congress over a massive stimulus plan to combat the severe economic and financial fallout from the coronavirus. One idea that seems to be catching on is a check of up to $1,200 to be mailed to every American. Well, Democrats in Congress want paid leave policies and expanded welfare benefits. They want a hell of a lot more than that. These may provide some needed temporary relief for families, but are unlikely to help lift the economy. Keynesian stimulus almost always fails and often makes the downturn worse and the eventual recovery weaker. Mr. Trump would be wise to learn the lessons from Barack Obama's $830 billion American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, which almost looks like a pittance now. In the wake of the housing meltdown and financial crisis, Congress passed the largest stimulus spending package in American history. The economic spark and job creation were supposed to appear almost immediately as money flowed into so-called shovel-ready construction projects. Vice President Joe Biden barnstormed around the country in 2010, promising a, quote, summer of recovery that never came. One problem from the start was that only about 15% of the money was used for roads, bridges, and other infrastructure projects. More than twice as much went to income redistribution programs such as Medicaid, food stamps, extended unemployment, insurance, or to green energy projects. Remember the federally subsidized Cash for Clunkers auto trade-in program? And by the way, Pelosi's listing the same stuff plus more. That sop to the auto industry did little to shore up employment or even the auto industry. University of Chicago economist Casey Mulligan calls the post-crisis downturn the redistribution recession. That's post-crisis. I got it. The left is now trumpeting the redistributive stimulus as a wondrous success. Mr. Obama even tweeted earlier this year that his stimulus plan laid the ground for, for more than a decade of economic growth. But the facts point in the opposite direction. When a stimulus plan passed, Obama's economic team predicted about 4% growth each year from 2011 to 2013. Fortune tellers with tarot cards and Ouija boards might have gotten closer to the mark. On average, growth from 09 to 012 was a mere 2%. Two years after the stimulus, the unemployment rate was still 9%. would have been much higher if not for the millions of Americans who dropped out of labor force because jobs were so scarce. The plan was designed to help the middle class, but median household income fell through 2011. In 2015, the Joint Economic Committee of Congress compared the Obama recovery with previous eight recessions and found that per capita income growth from was after 09 was thousands of dollars below the average. And their conclusion summarizes the legacy of the Obama stimulus. Quote, On economic growth, the Obama recovery ranks dead last. Unquote. To paint a rosy picture... Democrats have had to argue that the economy would have been even worse, bordering on a second Great Depression without all the spending. Yet their outlook before passing the stimulus exposes that argument as a mere shifting of goalposts. Actual job growth after 2009 was lower than what Obama's economic team predicted. It would have been without the hundreds of billions in spending. That's some investment. Then as now Pelosi was Speaker of the House, her strategy was, as Obama's chief of staff put it, not to let a crisis go to waste. The 09 stimulus morphed into a giant welfare bill by design. Mrs. Pelosi said back then that the spending money on food stamps and unemployment insurance was fast-acting and fiscally possible. anyway, they point out that she's back. There's two things that can be done. Two things. Believe it or not, I have a hard break. I'll tell you what needs to be done when we get back. love, in. I propose, I, I endorse what Laffer and Moore have proposed with well, my own little twist, and that is this, viable businesses that are in deep trouble can get zero interest loans over a long period of time, and as they become more sustainable and most gro- more growth oriented, they can start paying them back. Zero interest loans, but they get an immediate infusion of money. Not with all the usual requirements and so forth and so on. They have the tax returns of all these businesses. And get the money to them within 10 days. That's number one. Number two, freeze the payroll taxes. All of them. For three months, four months, whatever you can get. That puts money immediately in the pockets of those who are working. The goal is to stop businesses from going out of business, to retain their workforce, to continue to pay their workforce, to hire people back who have been fired or who have been at least temporarily furloughed, but give them an infusion of money to get their their feet back on the ground not grants loans and give each person who is paying now a payroll tax a holiday and same with the employers who are paying into it immediately in fact you could even do it retroactively to a week or two, depending on how fast this is passed. And there may be some other ideas, but it would stop big airlines, it would stop restaurants from immediately going out of business, stop them from panicking. It gives them a lifeline without turning our country into a massive welfare state for every industry on the face of the earth. It would cost under a trillion dollars, as I understand it, Again, there can be some other things you can adjust. Of course the Democrats won't vote for it. The Republicans should bring it up. They should vote for it. The president can get behind it and do the very best you can. I'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. very mindful of the self-promoters, the narcissists, the egoists uh, who are on radio, TV, and in newspapers and on websites, who keep pointing to themselves and their genius advice, who keep trying to scare the living hell out of you. You know as much as anybody else right now about this virus. Just live properly. Do what they suggest and the overwhelming majority of you will be fine. Over 99%. Don't let people freak you out. Just use your common sense. You're an American. You're smart. I'm not saying it's not a problem. I mean, I've changed my lifestyle right now and I bet you have too. But we also need to think about sort of what people are telling us and whenever I see a rush in a particular direction I slow down and say well now wait a minute wait a minute is this the right thing I think what's being done economically now and what's being proposed by the Democrats is deadly to this society I think the Republican spending is out of control I really do I think there are things that can be done. The problem is we have a Democrat Party that is trying to sabotage the American people. A Democrat Party that's trying to sabotage the economy, even the healthcare system, while claiming to represent the people in order to try and take the presidency, control the Senate, and continue to control the House. They're trying to advance their radical agenda, whether it's voting, in a way that Obviously, helps the Democrat Party, whether it's delivering to their various constituent groups, whether it's delivering to their base. It is truly evil, truly evil. The Republicans made a big mistake, and unfortunately, you've got Treasury Secretary Mnuchin there, who's not really skeptical enough, shall I say, of Nancy Pelosi who try to meet them halfway, and in meeting them halfway, they have a $1.8 trillion bill. $1.8 trillion bill, where they even want to give money to people who are still employed. They think that's going to create a stimulus. That's not going to create anything. Now, I want you to listen to a few people who are on the Senate floor today. James Lankford he's a senator I think he's from Louisiana but it doesn't matter I want you to listen to this as he's attacking the Democrats cut to go
5: it's two trillion dollars it's two trillion dollars and it's suddenly well it's not enough we need to plus this up to be even bigger and then suddenly it's become this whole transition into the most random of things Well, if a corporation gets a loan from the federal government, then someone here in Washington, D.C., should be able to determine how that corporation is run. We should be able to have a member on their board or a union representative on their board. We should be able to have some kind of stake in their board to be able to do that. We should be able – this was my favorite one. We should be able to tell the board if they're considering layoffs, someone here in D.C. should be able to go to the company – evaluate the rest of their portfolio and tell them other ways they can do their business besides laying people off. Are you kidding me? We're now going to create a whole new federal bureaucracy that goes to every company if they take out any loan in this program and to be able to tell them how to be able to manage the day-to-day operations of their company?
0: Isn't this sickening? Sickening. Let's continue. Cut three. Go.
5: This government's not even set up to be able to distribute $2 trillion. Let's get this out the door. Let's get something started, and let's keep the battle going for the other things. But for the sake of our nonprofits, for the sake of our small businesses, for the sake of people that want to stay employed, the people that are small business and restaurant owners and coffee shop owners and retailers, for the sake of them, why don't we just go ahead and get this vote on? And stop delaying it, trying to add one more special interest, something, into it. I move that we get going and get this done. And I'd encourage my colleagues on the other side to stop trying to renegotiate everything we've already negotiated and to stop adding one more thing. Let's make the one more thing a vote.
0: Good luck with that. By the way, Lankford's Oklahoma. I apologize. You want to hear something almost shocking? Susan Collins on the floor of the Senate today. Cut four, go.
6: We are in the midst of a crisis in our country, a crisis caused by the coronavirus. I cannot believe that the answer to this crisis, as we move to address the economic consequences that are so severe for the people of this country, that the answer from our friends on the other side of the aisle is delay, delay, delay. No sense of urgency. No hurry. I will tell you, Mr. President, I've had the honor to serve in this body for many years. Never, never have I seen Republicans and Democrats failed to come together when confronted with a crisis. Cut five, go. Mr. President, I cannot believe the objections to proceeding. To this package, is this package perfect? No, but that's why negotiations are still going uh, going on. But don't we want to act quickly to provide relief to the American workers? This is disgraceful. We do not have time. Time is not on our side. Let's get the job done for the American people.
0: If you vote, I'm telling you the truth, for any Democrat in this upcoming election, House, Senate or President, you're committing suicide not just for yourself but for this country. This party has resolved itself to take this society down. For three years it dragged us through impeachment efforts, an outrageous increase. Now in the middle of this virus, it seeks to take the country down. It's blackmailing us. Pelosi's blackmailing us. Schumer's blackmailing us. Every single Democrat behind this is blackmailing you. Democrat, Republican, no party, blue-collar, white-collar, union, non-union, whatever you earn, whatever you do, small business, medium business, executives and big boardrooms, this party, the Democrat Party, is trying to take down this country and blackmail the American people and then persuade the American people to vote for them and blame it on Trump and the Republicans. They are sinister saboteurs. That's what they are, sinister saboteurs. That doesn't change what the Republicans are doing with their massive spending. How the hell can you be a Republican and vote for $1.8 trillion for anything? So shame on them for that. But they don't seek to fundamentally transform every aspect of our society, even though they would through the back door. So in the Democrats, we're talking about fascistic socialists. That is, not democratic socialists, fascistic socialists. They can make their case in the election, try and elect their dear, demented Joe Biden, and then push their agenda as far as they can. But you don't use a virus where people are having to stay home, where they can't find hand sanitizers, can't find toilet paper, where they're not allowed to go out. And use that as an occasion to push your Quota identity politics, to take control of private American businesses, to push your voter, same-day registration bills, to turn the whole country into California, and all the rest of the BS crap that you left-wing kooks come up with. You power-hungry, good-for-nothing fools. That's what you are. That's exactly what you are. And your tactics are increasingly totalitarian. You can go to hell. You can go to hell, and it's about time the American people speak in one voice and tell these backbencher, good for nothing, no nothing leftists, to stick it where the sun doesn't shine. I'll be right back.
1: Much love in.
0: I don't want to offend anybody. That's not my purpose here. I like people who work hard, whether they're union members or not. But in the private sector, unlike the government sector, in the private sector, the union population is about 6% of everybody who works. 6%. So you have to ask yourself, what about the 94%? Nancy Pelosi has nothing for you. Nothing. See, here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. We're supposed to look at this as an American issue. When we go to war, do you think our guys in the foxhole say, hey, are you from a union family or not a union family? No, we're Americans. We're Americans. Hey, we you an electrician, a bus driver, a lawyer, a doctor? We're Americans. But that's not the way Nancy Pelosi thinks. She doesn't think America first. Like a good commie. That's right, I said it. She puts party first. In fact, she puts herself first. This is all about Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer empowering themselves. It is a disgrace. If you're unemployed right now, or you've been furloughed right now, or you're hunkering down at home right now, if you're a small businessman worried about what the hell's going to happen to you, I want you to know you have an enemy, and her name is Nancy Pelosi. I want you to know you have an enemy. And his name is Chuck Schumer. And these damn Republicans, the Democrats are fascistic socialists. These Republicans, they're the Democratic socialists. Use your noggins. You stimulate an economy by stimulating an economy, not by throwing money in every direction. My God, what the hell's wrong with these people? And we need to focus our medical resources now. We've done the blanket situation, but now we have information. We have information. We have tests. We have some answers, some good ones. Focus on those who are vulnerable under this this illness. We now know who they are. Focus on the geographic areas that need attention. We now know where they are. We are armed with more information and data today than we were a week ago or a month ago. So we need to adjust, in my humble opinion. Joe Biden, can you imagine this, not as president, if this was going on today? I want you to listen to what he had to say today. He's trying to, to kind of counter Trump. He doesn't know what to do. And he's reading from a teleprompter, and he loses track. Cut six, go. I'm glad the president
7: has finally activated the National Guard. Now we need the armed forces and the National Guard to help with hospital capacity, supplies, and logistics. What do you think they're we need doing, to you idiot? the Reserve Corps of doctors and nurses. Go ahead. And beef up the number of responders dealing with the crush, these of cases. And uh, and in addition to that, uh, in addition to that, we have to uh, make sure that we uh, we are in a position that we are. Well, let me let me go to the second thing. I've spoken enough on that.
0: Can you imagine this crackpot running the country right now, ladies and gentlemen? This isn't even funny. This is sick. Can you imagine the three stooges? Mo would be Nancy Pelosi. Curly would be uh, uh, Mr. Uh, I Got uh, Hair Weave. That would be Schumer. And who's left? Larry. That would be Biden, I guess. Mo, Curly, and Larry. Can you imagine these three freaks running the country? Cut 7, go.
7: Later today you'll hear from the president in his daily briefing. These briefings are an important opportunity to inform and reassure the American public. They're not a place for political attacks or to lash out at the press.
0: Why? They're if about the press the deserves American to, you know, hold on. If so. the press deserves to be lashed out against, they don't be lashed out against. You talking about you, idiot? Go ahead.
7: And in the days ahead, the president will give us the unvarnished truth. That's what the American people need right, and that's enough. deserve.
0: That's enough. I'm not going to waste brain power listening to this idiot. He has nothing to say. He doesn't even know where he is. Shame on the Democrat Party for nominating him. Shame on the media for doing a massive cover-up of this guy's obviously mental deficiencies. And I don't say that at a, to be a provocative. I don't say that even to be mean. It's obvious. How can you vote for this? Just because the Democrat Party coughs up him as the candidate? Look at what they're doing to us, this Democrat Party. The Demo- you know what? The president calls the media the enemy of the people. He's right in so many respects. But you know what? The Democrat Party is the enemy of the people. The hardworking people of this country, union, non-union, blue collar, white collar, doesn't matter poor, middle class, lower middle class, whatever. Employed, unemployed, small, medium, large business. The Democrat Party has demonstrated today as it's demonstrated before, but today more than ever before. It is the enemy of the people. Liberty, ladies and gentlemen. That's what will save us. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel, and all the people helping us. Thank you so very, very much. I'll see you right here tomorrow. God bless you.